I really believe everything is figure outable. There are lots of tools and techniques that can help to provide the scaffolding around your thinking to help you find an angle to get out of that corner that you're in. So thriving in complexity for me means finding ways to keep moving around constraints. Welcome to the Thriving in Complexity podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Libertilia, and I'd love for you to join me as I peek behind the scenes of complex situations and workplaces and interview leaders and experts who will challenge your thinking, inform and inspire your leadership so you and your team can thrive in the volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous world we live in. On today's episode, I'm speaking with Samantha Rush. Samantha is a curiosity-driven person who loves exploring the magic that happens when different ideas combine to create something new. Her diverse work portfolio includes management consulting, short film production, and she is the creator of Marvelous Women Decision Inspiration Cards. Samantha is the current Vice President of the Australian Institute of Professional Intelligence Officers, and she is undertaking a PhD focused on decision-making. I hope you get something really special out of today's episode. Samantha, it's wonderful to have you on the podcast today. It's an absolute pleasure. So looking forward to this conversation. I know it's going to be extremely interesting, but can we start with something a little bit different and ask you, is there something about you most people wouldn't know? I think there is, um, Suzanne, and I did have a think about this while I was putting some some notes together, but my first real job after uni was in entertainment uh, for a company called the Two Swords Group who has a portfolio of brands and attractions like Madame Two Swords, the London Eye and theme parks around the world. So the last year that I spent um, with them as the executive assistant for the CEO, we were based in a theme park which was about 20K south of London. And that theme park included a zoo. So it was an amazing experience. Uh, you know, every morning on my way to the office, I would pass the animals, including the penguins, which were my favourite. Um, so it was a really, really pleasurable way to start the day as well as finish the day. Um, the, off, the, the building that was the office um, within the theme park actually was a mansion. And that mansion uh, was built in 1348. And Queen Elizabeth I stayed in that mansion that was my office. So uh, I'm a massive history buff. So that was super cool for me to know that I was in that space where such an amazing figure had spent time. Um, there was a few complex situations that we went through during that time based at the theme park. And the the whole time working there um, that were quite formative for me. So incidents on rides, rides getting stuck, you know, and dealing with, I suppose, the aftermath of, okay, this incident just happened. How do we make this ride for for our our guests? And also helping to navigate an exit out of New York City for my boss in the days following 9-11. So that was quite an interesting and and rather complicated um, situation to try and solve. So I think um, I'm not sure how many people know that about me. Sounds like a really formative experience. And so was this part of the typical, what a lot of Australians tend to do is in their 20s, go and live overseas for a period of time. Finish uni. (laughs) What do I want to do with my life? I taught English in in Thailand for a little while. So I worked in a government school or what school at the temple um, during the day and then 
uh, in the afternoons and evenings, I worked at a, at a private English school and then travelled overland all the way up through China, I took the train across to, to Russia through Mongolia. Um, I worked in a pub in the middle of nowhere in England. I was in Israel um, living in a kibbutz and then um, back in back in London for a little while and then came home. I, um, I did the, the year overseas as well and Look, I could have actually been co-owner of a Chinese restaurant in Dublin. Wow. <laughs> I did not know that about you. So, yes, all the fun times learning how to um, take down shorthand to take people's Chinese orders while trying to understand the Irish accent and actually learning for deliveries that sometimes you need to ask people to spell you know, the name of the street because they tell me it was Charlemagne Street. And so I would write Charlemagne Street down and the delivery drivers would go, there is no Charlemagne Street. What are you talking about? Charlemount. Right, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, all, all very good lessons. <laughs> it's very, very. So, Samantha, you're currently completing your PhD about decision-making. I am. So would you tell our listeners about the research that you're doing at the moment? I'd love to. Um, and I've just spent uh, a couple of days last week at the um, conference for the Australian-New Zealand um, Academy of Management. So I've definitely been thinking about my research quite a bit um, for the last week and the last couple of years, actually. So my research is looking at decision-making in teams, uh, specifically looking at the acceptability of using structured process in team decision-making. So um, through uh, my early research, I found that the use of structured process that encourages individual contributions, so including minority and dissenting views that don't always come to the fore. So when you encourage those, um, all of those diverse views from team members um, and that the use of structured process in doing that can help to increase both the quality and the quantity of information that the team has to make a decision from, which should in turn have a positive impact on the team decisions, the team outcomes, as well as the experience for all of those that are that are on the team as opposed to feeling uh, like they haven't been heard, their voice hasn't been heard. Mm. So... Um, these, these feelings and these outcomes, so the quality and the quantity um, can also in, increase the group members' sense of voice, which then impacts the, uh, the, the positive perceptions about procedural justice, team climate. So, uh, so that's, that's I, think, I guess, the foundations of it. But just having access to these techniques and these tools isn't really enough. They need to be used. So just because you've got access to something and you know that it works doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the benefit of it. Um, and acceptability as in, as in, from one individual's perspective is quite complex. But when you're working with a team, you've got even more complexity because of the multiple people. So yeah. um, it is a complex assessment that includes consideration of the tool or the technique, how useful it will be, how easy it will be to use, as well as a whole raft of context uh, or contextual considerations and individual differences like personality between people. So my research is looking at the contexts in which using structured processes are most likely or more likely to be acceptable. So that's a really a, a long convoluted uh, explanation of my research. <laughs> no, it sounds fascinating and curious about what you were saying just then about acceptability and you know, the value in using something. 
Have you particularly looked at using those types of decision-making processes in complex situations? So complexity is, is one of the contexts that I'm looking at. And so the, the way that my research is, has proceeded, so I started in July 2020, which was in, in itself a complex situation being the middle of COVID. So first thing I did was I ran an experiment to test whether or not um, the use of these tools is more effective than not using them. So I had an experiment with a control group. Um, following that, I did some interviews. So interviewed a really um, diverse range of people. So I did 27 interviews with people across industry sectors, levels of seniority. So somewhere in project teams, somewhere on boards. Um, so it was really quite a diverse mm -hmm. range. And so out of that, um, that, those interviews came stories about when problem solving or, or decision making within teams has been difficult, what's worked well, what hasn't worked well, the contexts. So out of that, I'm now testing a wide range of contexts to see in which situations would using structured process be helpful, useful? Would you be likely to use it? And complexity is one of those. It's quite, um, it's a difficult thing to assess because complexity, I think, means something different to pretty much everybody. So um, it, it is a difficult one to assess. However, uh, I think the the context in which and some of the questions that I'm asking about each one of them could be interpreted as complexity. So, for example, I'm asking about situations where you have a large decision-making team. That could be construed as complex or where you uh, are virtual versus face-to-face. -face. Again, depending on the decision you're making, the context itself can be construed as as complex. So I think, I think actually probably pretty much every contextual question is about complexity. Okay. And when you talk about structured decision-making techniques, can you give us an example of the sorts of techniques that you're looking at? Yeah, absolutely. So anything where there's um, a guide or structured process. So there are there are two examples that I'm providing within my research, but there are, there are absolutely loads of them. So one of them, um, and I think probably most of your listeners have experienced this, is where when you're around in a room, you get your sticky note, everyone writes down an answer to around a particular focusing topic, and then you put them up all the wall. That's called structured brainstorming. So that that mm -hmm. in and of itself is a um, is a structured process. There's another one called the key assumption check, which I know you've seen um, before, yes. which is um, I think it's a really excellent um, a really excellent tool where you call out assumptions and then you go through the process of validating them. Um, there's another one that I tested in my first experiment called the structured voice elicitation technique, which is a structured process to um, you, you talk through whatever the decision is that needs to be made, then you give each individual time and make them, make them, and I'm using my um, Dr. Evil commas here, um, document their, their decision individually and their rationale, and then you come back together. So that structure of splitting people out, giving people time and space to think about their answer and document it and then come back together where the act of um, committing to a decision by each individual makes it more likely that they will give their opinion because it's concrete now, it's on paper, it's not just in their mind. So there's um, there's a lot of structured uh, processes mm -hmm. that can be used. So with the last one that you were just explaining, one of the things that we, we know we need to be really careful of in complexity is sometimes 
the the challenges with groupthink that everyone is influenced by what the group seems to be wanting to do and so actually protecting people's thinking and letting them think about it put down what they think and then do a compare and contrast why do you think that's important in this type of a situation it's very important because everybody has a contribution to make um, and I think this is especially the case where you're in a, a multifunction team. So every single person is on that team for a reason and they all have a piece of the puzzle. If not every piece of that puzzle is seen, then there could potentially be issues. Where people don't contribute their view or their voice, major issues can happen like the challenge of disaster. Um, mm. everybody felt that pressure. Nobody wanted to speak out against the, the, the majority voice that was in the room because of the political implications, the financial implications, the reputational implications. So no one said anything. Mm. And now we know the results. So um, dissenting views are really valuable. And I know that particular example also highlights why a key assumptions check is so important because if someone actually had have asked the question well why do we believe that to be true Mm. they would have found out that all the assumptions that they had been making were invalid absolutely or an assumption like uh launching this on time is more important than safety Mm. it would be have been interesting to see if someone had voiced an assumption like that what the result would have been or what the discussion would have been following that So any little um, tips that you can give to people about when you're making a decision, what are a couple of things that people might like to keep in mind? I do, and uh, I actually have three because good things come in threes. And the first one was actually what we've just been talking about, so raising and validating assumptions to make sure that they don't trip you up later. We don't always do it consciously, um, but our brains are always looking for shortcuts, So we don't always think things through properly. So what we need to do is bring those assumptions out from the unseen or from the dark and bring them into your consciousness and to to question them. And I think that's the same whether it's you as an individual or where you're together as a team. And using a a structured process like the key assumption check can help with this. Um, The other thing about using structured techniques and in a situation like this is when you're in a team and you don't necessarily feel comfortable to say, Suzanne, I think you're working under an incorrect assumption. That can be quite confronting actually to raise. Whereas if you say, I think it would be valuable for us to use a structured process like this. This is a tried and tested process that's been used by lots and lots of people. And I think we should go through it now. That is a, a much different uh, suggestion to make. So that's my yeah. first tip is definitely to bring out those assumptions and to validate them. Um, The second one is to be really clear on what actually is the problem that you're trying to solve or the decision that you're trying to make and spend time defining it really, really clearly. Um, That way where where it's defined well and it's constrained to what, what is really important, the more likely it is you'll be able to focus effort where it needs to be focused and get the outcomes you're looking for. So, Looking at a simple example, um, what do we have for dinner tonight? Wow, 
that's a really big question and you could go pretty much anywhere with that. Um, and we'll likely spend a lot of time talking about discussion and, you know, it might take us an hour to get to, to, a part, uh, to an agreement. Whereas taking a tighter question, what should we have for dinner using ingredients we already have at home that will be healthy and take no longer than 30 minutes to prepare? It's a really basic example, but it making a, your your question tighter and actually front-loading your effort to get that really tight will save you time later because you've mapped everything out before you start. So be it's clear. It's a little bit, sorry, I'm just laughing because it's a little bit like when you ask for legal advice. Exactly. The more effort you put into defining the question up front, the less it costs you and the more likely you are to get an answer that's useful. Exactly right. And and it's going to save yeah. you a lot of – so even though it will take you longer at the beginning to really, really be clear on what you're wanting advice on, it's going to save you time later by having to go back and ask additional questions. And as you say, it will save you money. Mm. So the third thing yeah. that I have is um, never put something in the too hard box and kick the decision-making process can down the road um not making a decision is making a decision a lot of people forget that and there will be consequences so what i don't mean is making uh not to make it consciously not make a decision that's very different if you consciously decide to do nothing about a situation that is a a different decision but avoiding a decision or saying let's do this in six months or this is not absolutely killing us right now, let's do it later, uh, yeah. it, it can can be very dangerous. So do, do that with caution. Really great tips to Thank keep you. in mind. <laughs> so, Samantha, should people adjust their approach when they're making decisions in a team situation? I think so. Um, we talked before about minority views or dissenting views and I think, or or quiet voices. And when you're working together in a team, it's not like it's just a whole lot of yous because we have that diversity, which is really important. So just because someone doesn't offer something, it doesn't mean that they have nothing to say. It just might mean that the environment is such that they don't feel comfortable to do so. So Mm -hmm. creating an environment where it can encourage them to share uh, is yeah. important and either you you can do that through depending on how much time you have really setting up that environment really building that trust the other way that you can do it is um through using uh structured processes so for example using structured processes maybe that that give people time so you know we talked about um that uh structured voice elicitation technique give people time so actually in advance you set the process you're going to follow so before people come into the room, they know exactly what it is that they need to consider. They need, they know what they need to have prepared. They know exactly how it's going to work. Um, and they've had contemplative time and space to do that. Um, so those expectations are set before they come into the room. They know that their voice is important. They know that they're going to have to make a contribution and that it will be valued and listened to. Uh, that can also really help to create that environment where people are happy to share their very valuable opinions. So it's much more than just finding a technique and going, all right, we're going to use this technique. Here you go, everyone. Here's a piece of paper. Let's follow it. What I'm hearing is um, a lot of similarities to the work that Nancy Klein's done around the 10 components of the thinking environment, really about how do you actually set up 
that environment that puts people at ease, enables them to give attention, you know, encourages them to ask incisive questions. And there also seems to be a really um, strong need to focus on the quality of the conversation and how are you actually creating not just the environment for thinking, but for those positive personal interactions. So there, once again, it seems like there's a three. There's the technique, there's the, envir- you know, the environment that you're creating, and then the, the quality of the, the conversation and the t- dynamics within the group, that if you want really good decision-making, you know, the techniques are really important, but there are some other quite important foundational things there that can increase your chance of success um, with a quality decision. I think that's that's exactly right. And all of that um, can take what well, it does take preparation. So none of that happens automatically um, and it doesn't happen when you just decide to pull it out of the bag in the room. Um, so all of that definitely requires deliberate consideration and preparation. Mm. Yeah. So, Samantha, you've also designed the and released the Marvellous Women cards. I have. Would you... Tell us what they are and what inspired you to develop them. I would love to. Um, So Marvellous Women, I call them decision inspiration cards. Um, I run a lot of strategic workshops um, or team workshops uh, and I've done that for many, many years. One of the tools that I like to use asks participants to think about problems from someone else's perspective so for example what would Barack Obama do or what would Oprah do about a particular situation it helps to get people out of their usual patterns of thinking about an issue which if it's something that they've been part of before or if it's something that they just can't quite uh, nail a solution to can just provide some different perspective and some insight and so Marvellous Women, I see, does a similar thing. But rather than being based on uh, Barack Obama uh, or uh, I suppose, you know, some of the, the more um, inspirational men that are out there, it focuses on inspirational women. So there's 52 inspirational women in the deck. Each card has um, a beautiful illustration It's been um, had, that's been uh, completed by a lovely Brisbane-based illustrator. Her name is January. And so along with a beautiful illustration, each card has three points of insights to consider. Um, I have a lot of cards and activities like this that I've used um, over the years, but as I said, many of them are focused on male figures. So I've got art oracles, music oracles, a whole bunch of other um, similar kinds of, um, of uh, I suppose, resources. But throughout history, we have so many inspirational, strong women, and I thought to myself, why why aren't we tapping into all their perspective and wisdom, like to put everything together in one place? And I couldn't quite find any resources that did that. Um, so I did what I usually do in these situations where I can't find something that I'm looking for. I think, well, why not me? If I can't find it, then I'm going to do this. Um, and so that's what happened. I started in um, October. October 2020 and then finally launched them in February of this year so it took a good 15 months and they're very inspirational Thank Samantha you. is there a connection between the marvelous women cards and thriving and complexity 
Absolutely. These cards I see being able to help give you a different perspective when you're fixed in an established pattern of thinking or an unhelpful thinking pattern, remembering that our brains are lazy. And if there's something that we've thought before about a particular thing, we're probably going to think it again, um, especially if it's negative. It's just the way we work as humans. Um, so the cards can help to do that, to give that different perspective, to cut that pattern of unhelpful thinking, or they can just give you some inspiration to think differently. So, uh, you know, whether it's something first thing in the day, set you up with some positive thinking for the day, that can actually have a positive impact on your entire day when you start off with your day with negative thinking it it can have a domino effect in your day so by kicking off with something positive can be really helpful so yeah i think there absolutely is uh, a a connection it's about different perspective yeah and i think that's such a key phrase isn't it when you're working in complexity it's challenging those perspectives, seeking out perspectives that are different to your own. Yes. Just to really stretch the way that you're looking at things and becoming more aware of those patterns that you've got yourself caught. Which actually actually goes right back to what what we were talking about before around um, dissenting views and minority views. Um, Sometimes, though, I, I find those views are the most insightful and just the most um, thought-provoking, more than the majority voice. So um, anything that can give it a different perspective and introduce something that maybe is a little bit left of centre is really helpful, really helpful. I know um, when you're getting feedback on workshops and things like that, I don't know about you, but I tend to always go to the ones that are the outliers and instead of going, oh, they're an outlier, actually use those as a reason for reflecting much more deeply on how things played out. What could I have done differently? What didn't I see that I should have, you know, would hope that I would have noticed? And so I think there's a lot of value in that outlier information in not just the current situation, but developing and improving for the future. Totally. I mean, Learning happens at the edges, at the boundaries. So um, an, another way that I usually um, seem to operate is if something scares me, I'll move forward towards it because I know that I'll learn a lot from it. And so I think it's exactly the same. Anything that happens close to the boundaries as as, as being an outlier or being um, even more complicated or more difficult uh, is is really where your learning and your changing happens. So, yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, yeah. It's that whole concept of being in that liminal space and not being stuck with who you are now but being more comfortable with being in that situation where you're not exactly sure who you are or who you need to be but you're on that process or going through that process of learning who that next version of you is yeah and I think that 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 can be very uh confronting and uncomfortable um I think again as humans we we like to be in familiar situations we like to we like it where everything makes sense but if if you stay in that zone and nothing changes then nothing's going to change so um being faced with 
something you haven't been faced before, whether it's com- complex. Um, you know, when you're in an ambiguous situation, you don't know where so- how something's going to go. You can't control what's going to happen. Um, as an experience I had a few years ago, um, I was doing, when I was doing my MBA, I did a, a capstone project was um, working with, there was five um, students from my school, University of Queensland, and five s- students from the Wharton Business School um, over in Pennsylvania, and the 10 of us worked together on a project for a Brisbane-based company that was looking to enter the US. And that was, there was so packed with ambiguity that whole project and one of the key learnings that I got from running that project um, or being in that project for nine months was just the value that can come from being in an unfamiliar and ambiguous situation and that it actually is a good thing because it means you have options. So uh, it it was pretty uncomfortable for me, I will admit, but now, but having been on the other side of it now, when I'm in an ambiguous situation where I don't know what's going to happen, I actually feel excited and I feel like I can just sit back and relax to a sense and have a look around me to see, okay, where could this go? So actually that experience totally changed the way that I see ambiguous situations going from, oh, my God, I can't control this, you know, how is this going to go? I'm so so anxious through to actually we've got all these options this is so cool let's let's actually sit back and watch where this could go and then we can uh you know gather some data and then we can just see what happens so it's it's quite a change so it's the whole idea of identifying possibilities and testing them out absolutely absolutely but rather than seeing uh the the open space as a oh, my God, I don't know where this is going to go, seeing the open space, which is exactly the same thing, it's just open space, as potential. Yes. Yes. So, Samantha, what does thriving and complexity mean to you? So when I was thinking about this um, yesterday around thriving, like most people, I think about plants. Um, So what I actually thought about um, thriving in complexity I think about I've got a tomato plant in my garden bed. So my garden bed is covered with a bird net to protect it. But my tomato plant has just gone absolutely wild with this uh, weather we've been having. It's hot, it's humid, but wait, no, it's raining. And so it has gone wild. It's grown so much that it's been constrained by the bird net. It's just shot up. Um, but the plant has found a way to push through the holes in the bird net. So it hasn't broken the holes, but it's actually inserted itself through the holes so that it, it it's, it's found space for movement so it can continue growing. So thriving in complexity for me means finding ways to keep moving around constraints. Um, I, I really believe everything is figure outable reading uh, Murray Folio's book a few years ago. There are lots of tools and techniques that can help to provide the scaffolding around your thinking uh, to help you find an angle to get out of that corner that you're in. So thriving in complexity for me means finding ways to keep moving around constraints. I love that. I absolutely love that. And that's and that's the tomato plant in my garden bed. <laughs> And I actually, I have, I've had to go out there and and spend time trying to kind of pull each little piece uh, back in through the net so that I can expand the stakes out so that it has more room to grow. 
I think I've, as you know, I have a tomato plant in my yard as well. And I've, um, that's the one thing I don't have covered at the moment. And every time something gets a bit of red on it, the, the birds or whatever fly in and have a good feast. Yes. So I've taken to picking them green and hoping for the best in terms of ripening them inside, but they still taste okay. So <laughs> Any, I think it's anything homegrown always tastes amazing. It does. <laughs> so if you were to look back, what advice would you give to your 25-year-old self? My advice to myself would be don't limit yourself, think bigger. Um, I think like a lot of young people, especially women, um, I think I could have done a lot more with, with my youth but you're limited by what other people are telling you, what your back of your mind is telling yourself. And then there's always that angle of um, I suppose the fear that comes with that uncertainty. And if I could go back to being 25, I think I would knock out a lot of that. Sounds like you had a pretty amazing experience, though, in your 20s. I did. I did. But I think at the time you don't appreciate. You don't appreciate the uh, the amazing things that you're doing. You don't necessarily suck all the value out of everything that you're doing. Um, you think about it differently, I think, when you're when you're older. Although I do think now back on some of the stuff that I did in my youth and I just think, oh, my God, what was I doing? <laughs> I'm sure I'm sure we're all exactly the same. I think we all are. <laughs> I think that's a fairly common yeah. reflection. Yeah. But yes, I would I would I would I would change my thinking about my potential. That's what I would do. And I think it's also important to remember that just because your younger years are behind you, there's still lots of potential left. As well, and that's and that I think is the uh, the the part two to the thinking, Samantha. You didn't take full advantage of your opportunities when you were young, girl, younger. So now's the time, and not just take advantage of those opportunities, but actually, you pro- you probably need to boost them by about fifty percent to make up for it. Mm. Yeah, and so. If people were to remember only one thing from what we've spoken about today, what must they be sure to remember? Make decisions consciously. Whether it's you for yourself for something personal, whether it's for you at work, whether it's for you within a team at work, be thoughtful about how you're making decisions remembering that a decision isn't just at the point that you're making that decision. It's what leads up to it and what comes after it. So one thing, be thoughtful and conscious about your decisions. And so important when you're in a complex situation, just to take stock of what's going on around you. And um, a lot of people that have been on the podcast have talked about sometimes it's just so important when you're in a complex situation to just slow it down a bit. Yes. And so I think that slowing it down, being conscious, 
really goes together quite nicely. But as you say, no decision is the decision as well. It is. Uh, So failing to make a decision isn't a good thing in in complexity. No. And the, the inaction is okay if it is the decision. Correct. You articulate yeah. that so much better than I did, Suzanne. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. So, Samantha, how can our listeners connect with you online? So LinkedIn is always a really good place. Um, you'll recognise me from the yellow shirt, I bright yellow shirt I'm wearing in my photograph. Um, or you can find me on email. And your email, we'll make sure that that is in the show notes as well. And um, Marvellous Women, if people are interested in finding more about Marvellous Women, how can they do that? So they can go to www.marvelouswomencards.com. Well, Samantha, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and sharing all of your insights about the research that you're doing and the value of structured decision-making and the importance of remembering it's not just about the technique, it's about actually setting up the environment around that so that you really get a good outcome from that process. It's been a pleasure having you. Thank you so much. Thank you. It's, it's also been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. If you had something you want to revisit or explore in more detail, you can check out the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode and you like helping others to open their thinking, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. As always, a big thank you to Leon Fitton and the team at the Podcast Concierge. That's all for this episode. I'll see you next time.